You are the heroes of this country. I know you weren't treated right because none of us were. But what you did, you made a sacrifice that most people would shrink from. And we honor your service. Because you did it without thinking of yourself. And I'm just sorry that we all couldn't make it home. But you're probably in a better place than we are. Take a girl and a guy, and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate. A dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page, Couples Synergy, or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experiences working with thousands of couples for nearly 20 years. Everyone says you need to work on a relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. I must mention that we are doing this episode as a memorial for all veterans that we have lost, whether in battle overseas or in the battle at home. And we especially honor the memory of Jean's cousin, Corporal Patrick O'Reilly, a young Marine who recently lost his battle with PTSD and depression. To help us with this episode, we have brought on Jean's uncle, Richard, who is a Vietnam combat veteran who served in the 1st Battalion Mechanized 5th Infantry, 25th Infantry Division, otherwise known as Bobcats. He is an author of two books, The Landscape of My Memory, about his experience in Vietnam, and Our Beat Goes On, a book about his return to Vietnam in 2010. We will be talking about his experience serving in the military and how his experience shaped who he is today, his experience with PTSD and how it has affected his relationships. We want to welcome you, Rich, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So why don't we start with, um, you know, when you you joined, right? Well, I got into the military on uh, February 14th, 1966, Valentine's Day. Ha, ha, ha. And did you enlist? Were you drafted? I was drafted. I figured I was going to go, but I, I didn't want to do it that way. I, I want to say thank you very much for your service, and you know, thank you for all the freedoms that we have today because of your service. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the uh, combat is a terrible thing. When did you find out that you were going to be going in the military? Uh, about 
two and a half years before that. How did you find out? Because I knew I was going to be drafted. How did you know? I just knew. Just a feeling that you had? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew. How come you didn't run away from that? Run away? No, I'm an honorable person. Mm. I love my country. I serve it. And you were 18 when you? Y- yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then they really, you know, I was really thinking about the term basic training, and it really is basic. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. To instantly train you to be a warrior. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, they did give us training that, and direct training for that purpose. Mm-hmm. They also had a football game. They had two teams, threw the ball up in the middle, boom. Whoever gets the ball and can keep the ball is the winner. Wow. <laughs> a little R&R at yeah. that time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, makes it tough. So were you deployed right away to Vietnam after basic? Well, that, that was February of 66. Uh, I went to Vietnam on the 10th of October, 66. And your your uh, unit was talk about being on the front lines. You were your unit was really on the front lines. Oh yes, when when I got when I got there, when I actually finished my training, I was a a, a combat soldier, but I didn't get the advanced combat soldier training. But I had a feeling for that, and they give you a test, and in the test that was came out, you know. So you you had the skills they were looking for. Yeah, yeah, and the temperament to do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, I was reading up a little bit about uh, the first battalion, fifth in- infantry, and you know the they were um, as were awarded the Valorious Unit Award, and some of the the things that your unit had to do was really extreme and and really courageous mm-hmm. the 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 thing with that is, is we were the uh reactionary force for the 25th infantry division if there was a, a, a combat uh group was going out to fight we did it a week before and a week after or maybe two weeks after so we were out m- more than the regular some of the regular units. Why is that? Because we we were out there making sh- making sure that we, as much as we could, where other people were at that were going to be after us, and mm-hmm. so we could get, you know, a head up on them. So you're gathering information and yeah, learning things. Yeah, I just read uh, a little bit of your book about the first time you went in a tunnel. Oh yeah, that's. Um, that's an experience. Mm-hmm. Crazy, but you know, when you're when you're there and it's there, you know. You know, one of the things that you said is you didn't want to leave there a tunnel virgin. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk about why those things become important to somebody that's that's serving in in combat? Well, it, it means that you're, you know, at least you're doing something that most people would be scared to death to do. And I didn't do that many, that many tunnels. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, just going in your first tunnel was kind of a... It's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting some of the other people we've talked to kind of talk about anyone who survived didn't do enough. Like that's sort of a feeling people have. That that when someone says thank you for your service, they sort of feel like, well, I didn't give my life, so like there's survivor, survivor's guilt. Survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. right. Well, yeah, survivor guilt is, is personal to you and the other person or the other people, you know, and, and it's in your unit. That That's how that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were, were there times when, you know, emotions would, you know, get the best of you? When you would feel afraid or feel well, fear? Well, if, if, yeah, if anybody was honest, going out in the field is scary. You don't know what's out there. You know, it's their turf. They have holes in the ground. They can come up anywhere they want. You know, that's, that's, that's the part that, the unknown. Other than that, you know, it's just going and doing what you have to do. Did you have a feeling that you would survive this? Yeah, I, I did because I had a, a mindset that I was going. If I was going to do something brave, I had to be smart. Mm-hmm. Good plan. <laughs> yeah. It seems like people that aren't able to really get their head in the game probably die much faster. Well, yeah. You, the thing is, is you ha- you can't go out there and think you're you're going. Uh, on a hike up the mountain in uh, Utah or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, death is out there and it's looking for you. So it's pure survival. Yeah. And, you know, we we didn't, at, the, at that point, we, we weren't fighting for anything but each other. So I, I had read in your book here about Specialist Fourth Class Daniel Fernandez. Yes. Who had... You know, in trying to rescue a wounded sergeant, he had thrown himself on an enemy grenade right. mm-hmm. to save yeah. the rest of the, the surrounding unit. Yeah. yeah, the thing about that was as I, uh, I didn't come over on a boat. I was, you know, a secondary group after that. But he told somebody on the boat that he was going to be a Medal of Honor winner. And he is. And what do you have to do to be a Medal of Honor winner? You have to do something extraordinary for somebody else. Running up a, a hill by yourself and killing off a bunch of guys, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, it's like what, what Daniel did. There was a firefight. Uh, I don't have all the t- the information because I wasn't there, but they had a firefight, <coughs> and they uh, were fighting, and then they were coming back, and somebody was wounded, and they were working on him, and then he they were being attacked. So what he did is he he saw a grenade come in, he jumped over three guys and landed on it and took the, the explosion, 
and he he died about a few minutes after that. And that's Incredible. that's true courageousness right there, and self sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right. At a level, most people never are in a situation where they would ever have to give oh, like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I imagine in those circumstances, the bond and relationship that you build, you know, with the buddies that you serve with, is almost unbreakable. Yeah, <clears throat> well, it was like a, a family. We fought sometimes with each other. Got pissed off at them. <laughs> I'm not gonna lose, lose you know. It's, that's the way it is. Yeah. You know, I don't uh, sugarcoat it. You know, the, the, what I say is the, the way they would would talk. Mm-hmm. But they die for each other. Did you stay with the same group of people throughout your service, or did people come and go? Well, I was. Late, late, a little bit later. <clears throat> so, uh, the, when I got there, the people that were moving out, then I became one of the ne- next group. Mm-hmm. And then your group stayed together through, well, through your tour. Well, when you're you're on an armored personnel carrier is what what we went through the jungle with, but we did a lot of stuff on the ground, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we just did what we had to do. How long did you serve over in Vietnam? It was uh, a, about a month less than uh, about 11 months because my father had died uh, about uh, two weeks after I got there. <laughs> and they sent me home. and. They were surprised when I came back. Really? Yes. They said, you know, he's gone. You know. But, uh, you know, it was just what you do. That was the month before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Which is next Wednesday. <laughs> That's great. That's kind of wild. Yeah. yeah. Right? That we're recording it now. Yeah. yeah. 53 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when when we came home, we weren't exactly treated like conquering heroes. How was it when you came home? We got crapped on. People, guys came came home, and they were they were throwing stuff at them, spitting on them, all kinds of crap. You know. Did you ever experience that yourself? No, I didn't, because I at one time I came in real late, and of course they were probably then going into the bars or goofing off or something. But, yeah. You know, uh, I just like to get some of them and take them off and run them through a few f- fields and shoot at them just to tell them how it was. But we never could do that. You know, I think the Patriot Riders, are you familiar with them? Uh, I'm not which, sure which the pa- group. The I, Patriot Riders are, they... They're motorcycle riders, yeah, and yeah. they'll show up at the airport. Oh, yeah. And they will, if it happens to be a funeral, they'll stay outside and rev their engines so the protesters can't yeah. be heard. And I think... Most of them are vets. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that is an awesome service that those people are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, there's something wrong in this country, and it starts with education. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about 
about your service when you came back? Well, I, I felt I felt good about it. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was a bum. You know, what was the hardest part about adjusting back to civilian life? Is the all the every, they did did it in a way that we were supposed to feel like we were less than human or that we were crap and we should just shut up and get out of their way and that never changed from Vietnam really mm-hmm. you know one of the vets that we had interviewed in um, episode 43 he talked about coming back like he, it everyone is speaking a different language and you know it, it's you know, people are complaining about little things that you didn't have the luxury to complain about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, from, this is, this is 50 years ago. From there to now, uh, young people aren't the same. They, they, they don't have the guts that we had. They don't, you know, not, I'm not saying all of them, but in general, they're uh, mama boys. Much less resilient. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So do you think that you guys had the guts going into the Vietnam War, or did Vietnam actually give you the guts because of your experiences? No, we had the guts before that. Yeah. Our, our, <clears throat> our street, we had a, a empty lot, and we fought every war from Attila the Hun to... Indians and the, the cowboys, cowboys and, and cowboys. Is this and as Indians. a boy? Like role playing? Yeah. Um, right. <clears throat> yeah. And but see, at that at that time, I wanted to tell this because it's kind of funny. All right, you know, kids put up uh, lemonade stands and stuff like that. Well, I, I lived in the second house in this in, in this in the street, and what. I did is I wanted to make some money, so I took some garden garden soil from my grandfather and went into the empty lot and put it in there, mixed it up, and then I sold that in in bags. No, selling dirt. <laughs> <laughs> really? Did it work? Yes. <laughs> yes. And the, the little girl next door that lived on the third floor, she she was my. Vanna White. <laughs> <laughs> she was your marketing model. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. You know, I had ideas like that. Yeah, and, that and innovation. Another thing we did is a fellow by the name of Rick Holmes and I. We went into the into the uh, empty lot, dug a big hole, put pallets over the top, covered it up, put coal and uh, candles in there, and sold tours to the. Uh, coal mine. <laughs> That's awesome. That's pretty innovative. <laughs> yeah, crazy. So a lot of people that have, have served in Vietnam don't like to talk about it. What inspires you to write a book about it? Well, I think it wasn't that that, uh, that did it. When I started it, it was just because we had guys in the unit, everybody was talking, well, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to... Well, I just got tired of it, so I wrote a book. <laughs> so you stayed in touch with the people you served with? Uh, not exactly. Uh, when I got finished, 
uh, with you know going f fighting. I was at at home, and it was maybe ten years after that we ran across uh, you know some some you know people. I you know they had this thing uh, for looking for people you went to school with. So I went into there and, and that thing, and I got in there, and I, I found a guy that was my squad leader, Butch Pettit. Mm. And they were, I talked to him and stuff, and then a couple of years after that, they started having these reunions. So I went to one of them now. Was that healing for you? Oh, yeah. What other kinds of things did you do to... Um, help yourself adjust to all those things you went through in the war. Well, I don't. I don't know if I act, actively thought of that, mm. <laughs> but uh, I did. I did what I did. See, after I, you know, I got married and we had a, a problem and we got I got divorced and then I, my daughter was doing gymnastics. I'm a gymnast, uh, and we went to this meet and. The guy that was the coach there, they had a problem with the uh, uh, microphone for t telling what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I have a voice that can be heard. And then we were doing that. We uh, found a, a thing called sports acrobatics. Mm -hmm. So from that time on until like you know, I was 54, we were we were doing uh, competitions and shows. I was 48 years old when we were the uh, national champions and the f men's four. Cool. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. And we did a lot of, of Renaissance fairs to make money to go comp com compete. So. I think that physical activity does something to help you process the emotional stuff. Oh, yeah. You're too tired to worry about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what can they say? Well, it, it sounds also like there was a, you know, of a focus you know, because it was a passion of yours and kind of helps you stay, you know, out of those thoughts. Yeah. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't do competitive gymnastics. I mean, I probably could have. But I, I think a lot was taken out of us in, in, in doing the combat. That that wasn't, you know, I probably could have worked out, but I didn't. Actually, when I went to Fort Hood, I was the parallel bar champion and the uh, uh, rings and uh, pommel horse. Wow. Cool. That's pretty impressive. That was, that was in uh, 1966, yeah. So that was before you were. Yeah, I was in okay. Fort Hood, mm -hmm. and I, I, I heard domestic me. I go, oh my! So I went there and I, I competed there. What other impact did your service have on your family? Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it was good for some and not for others. My, my daughter, you know how men are their daughters they don't you know but my son I wanted him to do certain be certain things and you know what we came back with was toughness mm -hmm. 
well, not all, all kids are, t- are that that tough, mm-hmm. you know. And my, I didn't realize my son was a little bit, you know, sensitive. So he ended up doing drugs and stuff and didn't go to school and stuff. And then he ended up getting to go jail, to jail. And what was interesting about that is, is he was like uh, 32 or 33. When he was in prison, he started a Bible study. Mm. And he was in three different prisons, and he was had Bible studies in every one of them, which surprised everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, that the him being in prison actually was helpful for him. Well, yeah, and I, I, I would I would wish that they he could find a church that would give him a job of going to prisons and doing that because. Mm-hmm. That's what he's made for. He knows more about the Bible than anybody I know. And he's, you know, teaching others. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. But it doesn't make me feel yeah, proud of him, but I'm proud, not proud of me. Not proud of you. Because why? Because I did it to him. Because of the, the impact of yeah. combat and... Yeah, the mindset of the... A stupid man, male. <laughs> if if there is a man listening who is a father, what advice would you give to him? Well, I think the best advice is to be low key with them. If you want them to do something, find a way of making making them do it that you're not beating up on them. Hmm. Yeah. With that. Yeah. So at some point you decided to go back to Vietnam. Can you tell us about that? Well, after after we got to doing the reunions, uh, before I went there, a couple a couple other groups went, and I I went in 2010 with Butch Pettit and the two other guys, and we. You know, went through the, the place and stuff. The difference with us is, though, uh, Butch got us to go up. We went up to, there's this big mountain in in South Vietnam. It's called Nui Ba Den, the Black Virgin Mountain. And when we went there the first time, we went up there. And so uh, mur- death, <laughs> death march up. But the Viet Cong around that whole area uh, that that uh, first quarter of the of the mountain nobody ever got up there but in 2012 Butch Pettit and I went around the side of the mountain and saw their their caves and stuff they're still there yep they're still there it's it's like a, a shrine the men on there stayed 10 years without coming down. Wow. Yeah, that it's, must have been some experience yeah. to be able to see that side that you were never able to see. We're, we're very proud of that. Yeah. Because we were not going there as 
the typical American. We were going there, and this was the second time, so we had a relationship with one of one of the colonels. They, they on the tr tours you go, and they'll have one guy. Uh, will they'll get a guy to come and have dinner the first night with you, and that was a, a, a colonel. And uh, he, that was on the first one he w was there. And then he was gone. The second time we came there, he wanted to go everywhere with us. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the last week of our tour, our trip there, he invited us to a, a, a barbecue at his ancestral home. And, and this is a colonel on the Viet Cong. Yes. And well. he had read your book? No, no. He, uh, he, he didn't get my book until that, the second, second time there, and he didn't have very much time to do anything. But uh, when we were there, he, he was walking us around, and his house was about maybe three-quarters of a mile from where our base camp was when we were there. Wow. So. Wow. But um, I remember you telling us a story about a river, and you were on one side of the river, and he was on the other side. Oh, uh, my first day in combat, first uh, my like eighth or ninth day in Vietnam, we were up in the hobo woods, and it's not hobos like bums. It's uh, hobo. I don't know what it means, but <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, I was, I was on the, uh, I think it was the west side, and he was on the east side, and when I, we were there going on the little tour, he got called me over, and he pointed in the book, and he said, when I was, when you were on this side of the, of the river, I was on the other side of the river same day same time and if he would have caught me he would have tortured me and then killed me and it's a strange feeling to be eating with a guy that would kill you <laughs> yeah I wonder yeah. if he felt the same way I think so I think so and how do you feel about him today? He's all right. He did what he had to do, what he thought was. And he's just like us. He didn't get what he thought he should get. Mm -hmm. He got the shaft. He got the communism. And, you know, communism doesn't treat people well, even if you're heroes. Yeah. So, kind of the same a parallel. So you don't hold a grudge, or no? What what can you what can you do? <laughs> well, it's yeah. it, it's also, you know, apparent that democracy didn't treat you well as heroes at the time. Also, same thing. Yeah, we we both got the shaft. <laughs> <laughs> when we were talking to you the last time, you had said that if you can forgive him, and he can forgive you. Then everybody should be able to forgive everybody. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Those are some powerful words. Yeah, it isn't necessarily going to happen very much, but right. 
<laughs> things are like they are. Mm-hmm. So in honor of Memorial Day, if you could talk to your brothers that you lost in war or to the other men and women that have given their lives for our country, what would you say to them? You are the heroes of this country. I know you weren't treated right because none of us were. But what you did, you made a sacrifice that most people would shrink from. And we honor your service Because you did it without thinking of yourself. And I'm just sorry that we all couldn't make it home. But you're probably in a better place than we are. They're not doing what you think they should for this country. And it's getting to be kind of scary. What would you say to uh, people who are currently serving that are coming home? You've put yourself on the line. And there are so many people, so many young people, that are too cowardly to even attempt to do what you've done. And because of that, you are far head and shoulders above any of them, I don't care if they make a lot of money, if they're, you know, if they have a lot of fun and they do a lot of things. And as they're adjusting to coming back to civilian life and they're struggling with some things, what are some things they could think about or, or would be helpful for them? First of all, you're alive, aren't you? You're alive, right? Yeah. All right. What what do you want to do? Well, what do you want us to do? Nobody's going to do anything for you that you're not going to do for yourself. <laughs> you you have the ability to continue. And don't take anything from anybody because you uh you know, there's times when they've they spit on the Vietnam veterans, but they don't come and spit on you. And if they do, they they'd probably go to jail. So, you know, the family has been kind of grieving because of the loss of you know Patrick. And you know, one of the biggest things was that it, it was no one knew. Right? No one knew that he was struggling. No one knew that he was kind of fighting these internal demons and stuff. And, you know, in, in speaking with a lot of vets, a lot of them have experienced the same thing. You know, and the feeling is that you need to be strong. You need to keep those things to yourself. You shouldn't talk about it. Right? You just need to man up. 
And, you know, I think that's the hardest thing for family members, right, that don't understand what they might be struggling with. You know, and so from your perspective, you know, is there something that family members should know about the experience of a combat vet and and what they should be concerned about? Well, before they should be concerned, this government should be concerned. They send you out to kill somebody. You do it, you come back, and you're, you're supposed to automatically jump back into being a nice guy on the street. You know, it doesn't happen. You need, you, they need to do something to change that. And my idea is that they, when they come back, they don't go home. They go to a, a place and they get straightened out. Like the opposite of basic training? Yes. To help them integrate, to help them heal. Right, and, and to understand what, what they've done is not murdering people, but saving other lives. Because that's what, you, that's what we're, you're there for, is to kill the enemy. If you're in, and if you're in war, that's what, that's what you do. It's kill or be killed. I think there's a difference between it being a choice that you're choosing to go do and doing it because somewhere someone has a bigger picture that feels it's necessary. Right. I I think your idea of having some type of a retreat center, a, a place for healing for vets coming home is an, it, it, it's like a, it makes sense, mm-hmm. right? It's a fantastic idea, and, and it absolutely is necessary. You send somebody out, they're killing people because they, if they don't kill them, they're going to be killed. And when they come back, are they supposed to just put on a smile and be Mr. Nice Guy? That doesn't happen. Your, your whole fiber of your being is changed. You're a killer if you're, a, if you're in the combat zones. You're, you're, you're a killer. You know, when I, when I worked in the hospital system, whenever we would have a code, whether someone was in distress or whether we had to, you know, do restraints or something that was a crisis, after the event, we would all come together as a team and we would process and we would talk about what it felt like and were there mistakes made and how can we improve. And that was a normal, normal process in dealing with a crisis. And, you know, what you're talking about here is is a longer-term processing of what a vet has gone through and what they had to go through so that they can integrate into civilian life intact. Right. Yeah, and, and the idea, you, you send them to work to be a soldier. They come home, and if they're finished, they come home. Now, what are they going to do? You... you you took that person and you made them a killing machine. And now they have to come home and just be with their family and yeah, and just be a civilian again. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you had open heart surgery. Do they sh- shove you out the door and never see you? No, they come back and they look, they, they do a checkup on you. 
well, they should do that checkup when if they're coming out and they're getting out of the even if they're not getting out of the service if if they're coming back as a combat soldier from being a citizen they need to have something that they can you know mm-hmm. grab onto you know i think that's a really great example you brought up because the the percentage of people who go through open heart surgery that have depression is very high and so yeah. Most patients that go through open heart surgery are suggested and request and, and referred to uh, counselors for therapy. Yeah, and see, I, I think if if you if you, I I had this one lady. She was a psychiatrist for the VA, and I have this program that I developed for. Uh, combating the some of the things of PTSD and uh, she wanted me to give her that, that information so her and her sister could, could, could make a thing on it it was my idea I had to come in she's a psychiatrist but she didn't we had three of us there it's kind of a, like a group thing and it was a joke can you talk more about what that is that plan that you have well all right. If they every every time they come back on a from a, a if like if they're going to be uh, come back and then go somewhere somewhere else, they need to be before they go out and and come into normal society, even the normal society of a army base or something. They need to they need to be checked out. How are you doing? What are you doing? And then. You know, have them go through another another physical because you know they might have gotten all kinds of stuff when they were doing it. Instead of ju- instead of just saying, "Oh, here, go home," you know, they can they, they can do some checkups. I don't know. Somebody said, "Well, don't they do that?" I thought I thought they'd do that. Well, I don't know. I'm not I, sure. I think they're starting to now. Yeah. You know, there was a one of the other vets that we had interviewed you had talked about some of the new guys coming back you know the va is is checking now their emotional health right um not just the physical health but i don't think that it's to the extent that is necessary well you can't talk to a guy one time and say oh he's okay right you know you you you, first of all you do the physical and in there you find out what's going on, kind of. And then you have people that are observing what's what's going on. I mean, when I got into, you know, getting my stuff, I had to come in and do a, uh, you know, at least bring my paperwork in. And... Um, There was a, a young man there, obviously was in bad shape. Right then, they should have put him somewhere, and I don't think they did. And that that was that probably was a mistake. Yeah. What are some of the signs or symptoms that you experienced that were difficult to deal with? Not sleeping. <laughs> Not sleeping. Was that was that constant? Was it worse 
at certain points and better at other points? In in, in the in the field, it was uh, probably maybe th- three hours of sleep every five days, something like that, four days. You know, when you're out there and you're working, you're working twenty hours a twenty hour days. You don't go to sleep right away. It takes you another three hours to go to sleep. Well, by that time you're on on another thing there. So uh, th- that's that was murder, you know. And if if that's not going on, it, it doesn't have to be you know uh, where it's a problem. It needs to be a solution. Anything else besides not sleeping? Uh, well, part of not sleeping is bad bad memories. You know. Mm-hmm. Now I I started doing some something to stop that, and I think I've gotten a little bit out of that problem. But uh, it's the days that bother us. The, the days. <laughs> not, not yeah. Not sleeping is not the problem. It's not. It's just. It's during the day. Daytimes, you know. If you if you're busy, you're all right. If you're not busy, you're thinking, and you're too you're not equipped to think. What what has helped you? Just time, I think. I wasn't I wasn't gonna let it win. Do you still think about it today? All the time. So fifty three years later. Oh yeah. Did writing the book help you like process any of this or help with the thoughts and well uh like I said before, I was going to write a book all right everybody was going to write a book, and then I write a book, I got nothing but hell from a lot of people, really, yeah, well, that's not right, this ain't right, that's not you know it didn't happen that way, you know. <laughs> You know that that's but, a, they, but they didn't write one. Yeah, that's a real thing, and it's the same concept. If five people saw a car accident, there'd be five stories about what happened. Yeah, and everyone's perception and the way we process memory. Uh, you know, because we do relationship work and we work with right. sometimes families with five kids and two parents, and you would swear they all live in a different home. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the more important thing is that it's your story. Yeah. And even if other people, and like you said, like memory is, you know, you can't always remember things. Same, same with them. And then when we can't remember, we fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And then we think, no, it happened this way or that way. Mm-hmm. Well, but, the funny thing about memory is that 50% of our memory is invalid yeah. and not, not correct. Mm-hmm. Our brain has a, a way of just filling in the gaps. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't like holes. Yeah. But was that a, was that a helpful thing for you, or did you feel like you exposed yourself in a way that it just opened up the attack? You just have to, you know, say, you know, I'm writing the book. It's my book. What I'm, this is what I thought. Mm-hmm. It might be the same thing as yours. It might be a little bit different. It might be this. It might be that. But you know, uh, to get a hundred percent right every word that comes out of there. For a, what you did, what you were doing it in a year, right? 
you know. And writing, I, and writing it 40 years later. I, I would ask anybody, try it. Mm-hmm. Try to do it. Go yep. do it. Let's see you do it. Let's, let's see you write that book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the important thing is, is that you wrote it. Yeah. And it creates a legacy, right, for yeah. people to be able to, to understand truly, yeah. you know, your perspective of what it was like to go through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just too bad that most people don't don't get that and um, th- there's a difference if we're talking we're talking about a book all right my book is designed way different than anybody else's book that I know I've seen them where they have a book and then in the middle they have all these pictures you look in my book you're going to see after action reports mm-hmm what what the government said had happened and what you felt and what you fe- felt and what you did in there. That's a different story. Absolutely it is. Because it gives multiple perspectives about what was happening. Yeah, and, you know, I, I even put in there the, 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 the language and the motherfucker. Mm-hmm. That's the word, that's what they said, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we all got, everybody was saying that. It was kind of the the inside joke for your unit. Well, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a joke. It was pissed off. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. it's hard to find a, a softer word for what you were going through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a, just a complete change of what you thought but see we fought world war two world war three which is not a three but uh you know we we fought all those things so we, we were ready we were ready we were we had been programmed <laughs> kids today they're not programmed for anything mm-hmm. they just get slapped here and slapped there <laughs> That's kind of crazy. You know, I, I had heard a um, from a police officer, a police chief, say that, you know, a lot of the, the work that soldiers have to do now is different than it was back in the day, right? That soldiers back in the day, if they were in the jungles and you were coming across someone else, they were either friendly fire or they were enemy but in today's day and age they're doing a lot more police work going through a town and having to discern whether the person is a civilian or whether they're actually enemy and that the PTSD that they suffer now is very different than it has been in the past I was wondering what your thoughts were about that well, first off, we went through villages, so it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I think the training has gotten better. If you're not equipped mentally and physically, you're going to be dead, and maybe dead anyways. That's what happens. So, so you don't feel it's really any different? 
Just a different landscape. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Just a different uniform. Different camo. So a village as opposed to a building in a city. Right. Do Do you spend time with any of your other, you know, any other your buddies that you served with? Well, it's kind of hard because they're not really around. But I know other other guys, and like we, we we have a, a, a office where we go. And it's a counseling office, but they have you know things and stuff. Every, every you, you could you could cut every cloth, and it's the same. Right. So it yeah. doesn't matter whether they're actually you know guys from your unit. Oh or no, not. no. We okay. you know it's a brotherhood. Right. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, if people go to serve, they're serving their country. And that's, uh, that's a higher love. And it's been almost all destroyed by people who are idiots. You know, I hear some of the dumbest things. Oh, you pass a law that a, kid, uh, a teacher can do nothing to to stop a willful child that's being disruptive of the class and everything else. You cannot do anything. You can't tell them anything. You can't put them in a corner. Something they might have a problem being put in the corner. You know, well, what are they going to do with this kid? The kid's going to go running wild. The, the kids aren't going to be taught. What moron came up with that idea? Mm-hmm. Bad has become good, and good has become bad. Scary. You know, there are other countries out there like Israel and and Switzerland where you are required to serve. Yes, that and that's that is the real issue. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant taste of death, but once. That was on our door. I, I put, <laughs> I put that on our door in Vietnam, and then we live. All all of us live by that. That's a very powerful, powerful phrase. Yeah. In in 2013, the VA released a study that covered suicides from 1999 to 2010, and it showed that roughly 22 veterans were dying by suicide per day. That is which 22 is, too many. Which is a staggering, yeah, staggering yep. statistic, right? And you know, I think that in in what we're talking about today, it's it's very important for us to talk about PTSD and you know the effect that it has, and you know. As we're talking with you, the effect is lifelong, right? The impact. Yeah, you you don't really get rid of it. You might lessen its hold on you, but it's never going to go away. And you had written in your, I think it's in your second book, but then also here's a little, you know, kind of a workbook, you know, that you have also the primary PTSD symptoms and indirect PTSD, uh, PTSD symptoms that you've indicated here. And I just want to kind of, you know, mention these, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about it. But you have primary PTSD symptoms, anger, crisis, grief, loneliness, phobia, suicidal thoughts or ideation, anxiety, hyperarousal, 
depression, guilt, low self-esteem, self, uh, sleep disorders, confusion, flashbacks, isolation, paranoia, hypervigilance. And with the indirect PTSD symptoms, chronic pain, denial, obsessions, compulsion, dependence, passive-aggressive, delusions, eating disorders, substance abuse behavior. This is a wide gamut of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, you know, so for all of you out there, if, if you recognize, if you have a family member that ha- is, is suffering from, you know, PTSD because of being in combat, these are some of the, the signs you should be really looking for. So how, how is it that we can help someone that is struggling with this? Well, first of all, they can't do it by themselves. And they need somebody that knows what they're doing, or else it could be worse. So uh, the primary responsibility, I believe, lays in the hands of the government. The because, VA. Because they took people that were government people, soldiers and put them in the combat and they suffered all these kind of maladies does the va offer those type of services oh yeah i believe i believe they do uh it's it's hard to you know know for sure because uh myself i had you know uh, not a lot of problems in that way, but I had, I know I had the problems and, uh, I got some help, but I, I really didn't get, you know, that much help. Most of, most of my thing has been kind of self-help. What kind of things did you do that helped you? Well, f- first of all, I identified post-traumatic stress disorder and its maladies and problems and then I uh, put together I actually put together a what I call a war on PTSD I love that that's awesome and I uh, you know it was my war so I, I did it myself and I, I just think that if they can identify those which problems they actually have in, in the most, they could probably make some changes with that. It's not going to go away because, you know, it's just, it's burned into us. Yeah. You know, everything we did over there is just a millstone around our neck. But we do things and live in spite of it. You say fight like a war, yeah. a war on what, what is the fight and, and is it worth fighting? Yes, it is because uh, as you know, there are people that are committing suicide in uh, more than there should ever be and that should be stopped but you know, it's it's the government's responsibility, but it's also the families and the person's responsibility. You know, if if they, all those entities work together, it, it would probably help them a lot more. Did you ever get to the point where you were contemplating suicide? No, I I was always afraid of hurting myself. Mm. Really? Yeah. 
So, I, you know. That helps. Why do that? Yeah. You know? So. Did you ever have anyone reach out to you when they were really struggling? I've t- talked to some some guys, yeah. Not not very much because you know most of them are you know pretty keep the the thing to their vest, you know. One of the things I think is sort of uh, maybe will sound strange to you or maybe not. Um, I think prayer and meditation is probably one of the most useful tools. Do you did you have any experience with that? Somewhat, yeah, I think so. You know, I went through basic training. Mm -hmm. I was I served in the reserves and. That's what it felt like to me. It felt very similar what they were training your brain to do in basic training was to not let your reactive brain react, right? You had, a, you had to stay non-reactive to whatever was happening, whether it was too hot or too cold or a bee stings you or whatever it is, you're not supposed to react. And meditation is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. In meditation, you allow yourself to hold yourself in a position while you experience things and it starts a process of healing and a rewiring in your brain that I think allows you to then have better control over regulating your emotion. It's just super hard work. Yeah, and I think uh, I I have an idea and I'm not sure what what they're actually doing nowadays for sure, but It's a fight that you you need to allies. To to go it alone is rough. I mean, I basically did go it alone. It almost sounds like you were scientific about it. Because I yeah, almost yeah. Because mm-hmm. I I talked to these people that were supposed to be helping me, and they really didn't have a good grasp on the the thing. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point that you bring up. I I found that um, vets who who do seek out therapy, they're reluctant to talk to someone who hasn't served. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. How do they know? Right. How, how are they going to know? How are they going to... Now, if they've been working with it for years, mm-hmm. they probably got a little bit of PTSD too. Sure. Because it's, it's it wiggles its way everywhere it can go. When you were um, in the military, when you first got out of the military, did they use the term PTSD? Nope. nope. I didn't think it was invented till much later. No. I think they had something called... Like combat fatigue, combat, yeah, I think, like that. was... That, that was that was pretty well in World War Two. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they... <laughs> it, they... They actually went so far as to say it didn't exist. Yeah. That that body keeps the scorebook. That guy was a psychologist. It was a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist that did a lot of work, and he he was the one who was part of the discovery of calling it something and saying this is real. Yeah, well that's that's good mm-hmm. because uh, you know you you can get help, and the, but the problem is, will you go get it? Yeah, that that is the big problem. No, my wife has a friend, and her her brother is a combat veteran, and he was having all all kinds of problems. But yeah, you know, she got retired from the states, so she went went out and got her brother and 
got brought him up to where they live there, and he's now he's helping somebody else. So that's a, a good a good thing. But you know, to go to go it alone is pretty rough. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you don't ever go to war alone. No. And you can't come home and have a private battle. No. You, you can't win it. It's impossible. No, in fact, it'll it'll it it will destroy you. Mm-hmm. There's a reason there's a squad and a platoon and a company yeah. and a battalion because you need that. Yeah, and when you when you go to uh, like if you, if you just went to a VA hospital, you could go in there and you'd be among yourselves. You'd be with somebody that knows what you're do, what, you know what you've gone through and everything else, and there you have a, a commonality with them. The the other vet that we uh, interviewed, Jim, he would go there just to sit in the lobby to talk to the other vets. Not even to talk to anyone who was working. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he found that really helpful. You know, our hope is that, you know, if there is a vet out there that is, you know, doing this alone, that hopefully they they would be able to hear your words and reach out for some help. Yeah, it's hard hard for them to reach out, though. You know, it's it's almost like you got to go and find them and then drag them in if you can (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the hardest part. And, you know, the willingness of it, and that's why we're really grateful for you sharing your story and for the other people that we've interviewed because once you share it, then it's out. Yeah. And once it's out, then you can start to tend to it. But if it's trapped inside of you, Mm-mm. that's a demon. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's worse than alcohol. I don't know about drugs, but it's worse than alcohol for sure Mm -hmm. because that just destroys you not anything else (laughs) yeah the idea is to destroy your relationship with ptsd and i think it kind of is a relationship but it's not an easy one so if you're a warrior the fight's not over but keep fighting yeah the problem is warriors need help Mm -hmm. and if they don't get that help they're they're gonna go something something will happen their their health will go or they'll you know see seek other means but now like for us right now i mean you're you're talking about 50 years ago with vietnam yeah you've been you've had this inside of you for that long yeah my entire life yeah yeah so i've (laughs) I'm not going to go out and kill myself. We're glad. Because I made, it, that? I made it through that part of it. You know, given all of the burden that you've had to shoulder for serving our country, would you do it again? Yep. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, because it's worth it. And that's the important thing is that it's not for nothing. Yes. And, and that... That is all there is in the end, right? Yeah, and I wish there the were more people who are making all kinds of trouble would understand that this is a, our country, it's their country, but if you don't love this country, why are you here? 
Yeah. Why are you there? Go somewhere else. If you like socialism, go to Russia. <laughs> you know. Right. Get out of here. But don't change us because we don't want to change. And we're not going to change. We want to thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Well, it has been an, a true honor. You know, people have been sharing their stories for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to heal and to bond and to grow. Yeah. And we hope by, that by you sharing your story, it's enriched your lives, your life and the lives of our listeners. Oh, yeah. If you don't, if you don't spread what it is, it's not going to help you either. Yeah. <laughs> And any veterans that are out there, do you have that number? I do. And certainly you can contact us at couplesynergy.com. We'll reach out. We'll reach back for sure. So if you are seeking help or needing to seek help here, the Veterans Crisis phone number is 1-800-273-8255. It's 1-800-273-8255. You know, when you were in basic training, they gave you some tools to help you through the war. And this is the tool that helps you through the, the second half of it. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast. Please leave a, re- a review. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple. Look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life, synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian along with Organizational Director Calvin Javier and Marketing Coordinator Bridget Reese. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.